Hello, and welcome to I Am Dad Podcast with your fatherhood authority, Kenneth Braswell. 30 minutes of wisdom, information, resources, and nuggets to help you on your fatherhood journey. Or maybe you're just curious and want to hear some real talk about fatherhood, family, and the minds of men. Well, guess what? We got you too. Sit back, grab your pad and pen, and maybe even bring a little something to sip on. Enjoy 30 straight minutes of fatherhood, family, and fun with the fatherhood authority. Kenneth Braswell. Hey, how you doing? Welcome to I Am Dad Podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth Braswell, and thank you for tuning in another Sunday morning as we have some great conversations around responsible fatherhood and all kinds of other things that come up in the midst of our conversations with our great guests. And this morning is no different from the other mornings that you've listened. Um, Tina Nadu is just an awesome individual. She's a great friend read you a little bit of her bio. Um, She has served under the leadership of Bishop T.D. Jakes for over 25 years, probably more. It's probably an old bio, but we ain't going to kind of date her. This typo is probably more five, but we're going to go with 25. Amongst her many other accolades, Mrs. Nadu, Ms. Nadu has been recognized by the White House Champion of Change in 2016. In 2021, Ms. Ndu was asked to testify to the Canadian Parliament on behalf of a bill that was inspired by the Tory program. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, That tireless work uh, was forwarded to the Second Chance legislation. Um, She also continues to lead Tory uh, with a culture that emphasizes the dignity and worth of every participant, employee, and partner by forwarding the vision of a reformed criminal justice center um, system. Um, In the last 15 years of this um, organization with Tory and since, they've witnessed over 30,000 rehabilitating returning citizens, which the number is just phenomenal in and of itself. Tina, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me this morning. No, um, you know, I was, you know, when I, one of the pleasures I have in doing the podcast is I get to do uh, internet surfing and digging into people and seeing who they are and seeing, trying to find some things I never knew before. And what struck me about what I found um, in some of the, on some of the websites and stories and interviews and things that you guys have done is the transformation of lives that you guys have had um, with these dads that are coming through. And I know being in this space, again, there's nothing more satisfying for me um, than to see someone's life, see someone's life change as a result, as a result of something that I've poured into them. There's nothing more satisfying than that. Talk to me a little bit about what drew you to this work. Well, I have to say at my core, I believe in change. I believe that people can change. Um, I think a lot of times people give up on people. Um, We give up on each other. Um, We call it quits too soon. We don't hang in through the the tough times. And um, I've always been kind of for that underdog. You know, like you said you couldn't, but I think you can, you know. And so... This work um, is really uh, our founder, Bishop Jakes. It's really who he is at his core. 
Um, he's they've they've called him like the bishop of the battered, the shepherd of the shattered. Um, but there's a reason for that because he believes in broken people and he believes you can rebuild your life. And I've been under his tutelage for the last 25 years, and um, it's just kind of in my DNA to go after people that the world gives up on. And I really sincerely believe that if they're given the right tools and the resources and a second chance, that many can change, um, will change, but are not often given the opportunity. And so that's what I love about the work we do. Yeah, I want to stay focused on you, but I do have a question about Bishop because you would have a great insight on this because I've followed him since West Virginia. Like he is just, man, if I had, if I could pick a daddy, like you don't, you always say that if you could pick a daddy and I didn't have one growing up, so I get the chance to pick a daddy, it would be him. It just something about his heart that just resonates with me, which leads to my question. What's in his heart that people don't know that inspires him? Um, that's, a, that's a really great question. Um, I think his heart has always been one of a shepherd. Um, he's that guy that will go after the one, even if the crowd is cheering on, he'll go after that 10%, that one that everyone says can't make it. Um, he's kind of the echo in my ear all the time to keep on walking. Um, many, I, I think many people that have listened to him will say that he's the voice in their head that tells them to keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think in his heart, the person that he is is a person that loves, that cares. He's loyal. Um, and that's just one of his core values. And he's for you. Mm-hmm. And so even if I've seen a lot of people that have left, um, for different reasons, transitions in life, different things, but he's always remained friends. You can, you know, that you can always call him. And at the end of the day, he's for you. So, um, he has the heart of a father and, you know, fathers, as much as their kids can get on their last nerves, you know, at the end of the day, they're still going to pick you up in your poop mm-hmm. and, you know, <laughs> help clean you up, you know, and get you on your way. And that, that's just kind of who he is. Mm-hmm. We often describe this work, particularly this work around fatherhood, as not being hard work. This is heart work, right? If you don't have the heart for this work, then you're not going to do very well in helping people um, get through the myriad of struggles that they have in their lives. And more specifically for this population of returning citizens who have, you know, made some mistakes in their lives, not made the best decisions or have found themselves in the wrong place at the wrong time and having to find a way to recover, to re-enter back into what we will call some normalcy of life, right? But Mm -hmm. for you, why is it so important to work with this particular population? Um, I I, I honestly, I think that for all of us, the difference between us and them is that they got caught. Mm. I really don't believe that we are somehow so much better than they. Um, And I don't oftentimes see an us and them. What I see is someone that's on this journey of life like us and have made some bad choices, bad decisions, um, and they're looking for an opportunity to move forward. 
And that's, that's kind of where I see my role, my purpose. Um, now, you know, a lot of people might argue the point that everyone doesn't deserve a second chance. Um, I don't believe that that is our calling. I don't believe that that's what my role is, is to be the judge, the jury and the verdict. <laughs> you know, I, I believe that um, God has gifted us mercy and I'm one of those carriers. So um, the work that I do, irregardless, I don't really see them just as ex-offenders or people that have a criminal background. What I see, um, especially because we're a voluntary program, is that people come to us because they want help. And if you want help, then I'm the one to help. Yeah, it's an amazing journey to watch. I'm telling you, I don't know what is it, what it is about this particular subject matter over the last six months working with um, incarcerated individuals and this whole notion of fatherhood within that context. But something is drawing me into that space like never before. And I don't know what it is. I just keep exploring around it, trying to figure out what it is. And the way that God usually gets to me is he connects me with stories like he'll mm. bring people into my space that'll tell me stories that resonate and literally give me the insight that you just talked about with respect to the differences between me and them which is just this fact that they got caught doing something that yeah. didn't or i didn't get caught doing and as i'm listening to these dads i often think about my stepfather right, who uh, was incarcerated most of my young life, um, came from Mississippi, came from nothing, uh, moved to New York, um, got in a little trouble, um, got sentenced and sent upstate New York and spent a large part of his young adult life um, in prison, went into a halfway house, uh, worked for a couple of different companies and then fell into a steel company. And I remember going up and visiting him during the summer and seeing him get up every morning with his hard hat, going out early in the morning and coming back late at night and banging at this steel job. And fast forward years and years later, this young man who moved from Mississippi, fell in trouble in New York City, got sentenced to an upstate federal um, penitentiary, comes out, get into the workforce, some 25 years later became the VP of International Affairs for Austell um, in that space. So I often have wanted to tell his story, you know, yeah. from the, you know, from the dirt to the air so that people could really understand who he was in his life. But I often remember also the societal perception, not only of him, but people like him. What disturbs you the most when you think about how society sees individuals with these backgrounds? Well, I think the thing that disturbs me the most is how unforgiving we are as a society. When, when Christ, um, in my faith, you know, gave so generously um, of himself to take on the sins you know, or to take on the hurt and the pain and the shame that I created and did it so unselfishly. And yet in our society, we're so unforgiving when people make mistakes. Um, we, we lack grace, we lack mercy, and we're all justice all the way through. Um, yet if it's us in that situation, we want grace and we want mercy um, and we don't want the heart 
you know, handheld to us, but yet we have this lack of compassion and empathy um, for those with a criminal background. Rather than getting to know the person, all we do is get to know the deed that was done. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, even in this setting, you know, a lot of times I think about, he didn't go to prison because he was a dad. He went to prison because he made a bad decision. And so oftentimes we're still punishing them for something they didn't even go to prison for, you know, um, we're punishing them for just living, for being. And um, I, I think that's the part that really um, is something that I just, it just, it really bothers me. <laughs> and I know that a lot of that has been the inspiration for creating Tori. Talk to us a little bit about Tori and the work that you do with that agency. Sure. Um, so Tori was a vision of Bishop T.D. Jakes um, in the sense of he started a prison ministry that was thriving from our church for 11 years. Um, but through that thriving of the prison ministry, many people released back to Dallas County where our church is, and the church's name is the Potter's House. So many people showed up at our doorstep wanting services, not realizing it was a church and not a transitional home that he created. Um, but because of that, many of the city leaders, national leaders were really calling upon us to come up with a solution because mass incarceration was such a crisis in America. Um, and so, you know, the statistics are within three years, 65% go back to prison. Um, so our goal was then to figure out how to create an aftercare program so that when they came home, we could lower the rate of recidivism. And what I can tell you after 18 years, after serving over 35,000 returning individuals, um, we have a very low recidivism rate of 11% wow. compared to the national average of 65%. The other thing we found out is that it takes about $50 a day to incarcerate in Texas but it takes our program less than $4 a day to rehabilitate. So even from a business state of mind or from economics, it makes more sense to rehabilitate an individual than to incarcerate and throw away the key. Mm. And, you know, it's, 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 a, it's amazing, you know, and one of the things that I've always personally wanted to do since I found out you guys were doing this and when I met you and the several times that I kind of crossed um, Bishop's path, you know, through um, manpower and, you know, and, and Megafest and having the opportunity to, you know, speak at Megafest with, with our manpower, which is one of the highlights, you know, of my, my work, just being able to know that he trusts me enough to stand on his stage and speak to 10,000 people, you know, about my work and my heart. And in addition to that, interviewing Kirk Franklin and Wes Morgan. Um, and at the time, and this is a whole nother conversation, Kwame Kilpatrick was also on that podium as well, who was a story that needs to be told um, um, also in this incarceration space um, and the family that, he left behind, which is where I'm going, because oftentimes in this work, when we talk about reentry, uh, we talk about how we're going to provide services for the dads, but we don't talk a lot about the families that they left. I've heard often that when someone is incarcerated, 
they are not the only ones incarcerated. Their families, to a certain extent, are incarcerated with them. Talk a little bit about that and the work that you do to kind of really help them integrate back into their families. Well, you know, um, family dynamics can be very complex. Um, and especially when you add the dynamic of incarceration, it, it then becomes even more complicated um, because you have children that are not judging their dad, but then you also have mom who is like the breadwinner just left. Um, this was not part of the plan. And now all of a sudden she's single mom in it, trying to raise the children um, with no resources. Sometimes she is a working individual, but there's something about having two people involved as opposed to just one um, to carry the load. And, you know, just the, the shame it brings to the family as well. You know, the, um, the, the community and how they treat you and your, you know, your kids. So it's, there's just a lot of dynamics that play out. In our work, what we do on the aftercare side is family reunification. So we, we have to figure out where they are in that process. A lot of times when fathers and mothers get incarcerated, their parental rights get terminated. So their children are in the system. Um, oftentimes you have to go through quite a few things, um, even from custody standpoint, to get your children back. And one of the stories I tell often is just even having housing. Um, a lot of our clients will show up and they're ready to get their kids back, get their family back. You know, they're ready to do this again, right? And um, the judge will say, well, do you have a stable, healthy living environment? Well, if no one rents to you and you can't put your name on, on a residence, you don't have an address, um, they're not going to release your children back to you. And so oftentimes it's a lot of the dynamics we're working through. Um, if while incarcerated, they separated, parents separated, um, trying to get that conversation started again in the best interest of the children. Um, there's just so much of that that we have to sort through in order to bring the families back together. Um, because incarceration does, it, it does create a breakage in the family. It's just, it's part of it. Yeah, we did a, um, under our federal contract, we just did a virtual summit in June uh, with over a thousand people, which was just amazing to have that many people um, come on to your work virtually. But in that summit, we had a panel discussion um, on young fathers and two of the individuals, including our board president, which also spent time incarcerated. There was another individual that was speaking as well. And he was talking about coming home. And he said something that I had never heard before. It blew my mind then and has blown my mind since. And I'm trying to figure out how do we begin to incorporate these stories into this narrative. And he talked about how he came home and everybody wanted to love on him and wanted him in the mix and wanted them to come to their houses and wanted them to come to dinner and wanted to do all these things. And the family is just all up underneath them. They found themselves like every two hours, like getting this huge um, feeling of anxiety and he would just get up and he would just leave. And they couldn't understand why he was leaving. They thought he didn't want to be there. And what he was talking about on the panel discussion was they didn't understand that after 20 some odd years of being incarcerated, he was only used to being amongst 
people for a span of an hour to two every day that beyond that gave him a level of anxiety that of around his safety and he could not turn that off but at the same time did not know how to articulate that to his family so that mm-hmm. they would understand the importance of giving him his space as you work with those dads what are some of the things that you learn in hearing their stories um, that we might not know as families that are trying to integrate them back into our lives? Sure. Um, I think one of the biggest myths out there is that men are not emotional. You know, they're just hardcore. They, they don't connect at the heart level. They don't get it. They're just, you know, this rough and tough. Um, and God knows what they saw in prison. So, you know, who knows what, the, and, and and there's this dynamic where it's like, are they a threat or can we just bring them in and ignore all the other stuff? Well, my suggestion to you is that you don't ignore any of it, right? No, some of the stuff is uncomfortable. Some of it is worth the conversation. And a lot of times for our clients, like you said, articulating it is very hard because you're you're feeling a rush of emotions and you're like I'm supposed to be in a safe environment with my family but my past dictates that when I'm in a group this large I need to be on guard Mm. you know I need to be on I need to be playing defense Mm -hmm. right and um so I think a lot of what we have to sort through emotionally with them is to help them to understand the difference between a safe environment and a unhealthy environment and then also being able to let their guard down um and to not be so nervous about um or anxious about getting in touch with their emotional self you know um because the truth of the matter is if they were able to let their their hair down if i could say that or you know relax they love their family they love their kids they missed the time that they that they were gone. Um, but just like immigrants, when you get to a new place, there's going to be anxiety. There's going to be angst about all that's going on around you. This is unfamiliar territory and it takes time to assimilate. And so you just do it a little at a time. You don't bite off the whole thing. You know, if that means you excuse yourself after two hours of exposure and then you build up to five, then that's what you do. Right. And then eventually over time, that becomes a day, that becomes a week, that becomes a month, that becomes normal. And so it's building that new norm. That's a lot of what we're trying to do in that assimilation. Right. One of the other, um, my, my, um, my board president is a bishop as well. And we kind of talk about this stuff all the time. He's doing this work now in um, near in and around Newark, New Jersey. He's from um, New York, from Harlem, you know, has his church in, um, in, in New Jersey now and looking to, you know, come towards, I'm trying to get him and his wife to come to Atlanta um, so that I can bring him and start using, utilizing some of his skills in this space. But I oftentimes ask him about the difficulty in convincing society that this is a space that faith-based institutions should enter. Um, And primarily because I've heard this said also, 
it's very difficult to do this work without the element of faith integrated into it. From your vantage point and from the Potter's House vantage point, why was it important for you guys being a church to get into this work? And how do you deal with the perception of what these individuals coming out of incarcerated situations see church and grappling with the fact that a church can actually help them with what they're going through in life? Um, well, it's funny. I'm, there was a story uh, that I can share with you when I was on the stand for one of my clients. Um, the judge was um, trying to make a decision about sentencing him, and he was a new father. His, his baby was about eight months old. Um, but this was like his second time reoffending. Um, but he had been a part of our program for about six months while he was waiting trial. So while I was on the stand, the DA says to me, oh, okay, so he's found Jesus. Mm. He must have an office in prison. Seems like everybody finds him when they get there. Wow. And I was like, whoa. Um, and I, I, I laughed at the time because it's amazing how judgmental and stereotypical things are, um, or even the criminal justice disciplines are about ministry mm -hmm. and about what happens with prison ministry. Um, a lot of times people in prison, in a controlled environment, can surrender to the Lord, can give up a lot of things. But when they get back into the real world, that's when your faith really kicks in because you're, all the elements hit you. And um, now you're making life decisions again, whereas in prison, every decision is made for you. And so I oftentimes say faith is really the secret sauce of what Tori does, mm. because um, at the end of the day, if you don't have that, that anchor to hold you through the rejection that you are going to see, um, because people don't forgive in our society, not all. And um, you have to be able to continue to stand and, and be able to continue to say, no, this time it's going to be different. This time I'm not going back, um, despite what everyone else is saying around you. So I think faith plays a very critical role in keeping you anchored um, in the aftercare of incarceration. And it's great that you guys are doing the work because, you know, what you're doing is you're creating proof of concept, right? And so when you're able to walk into these spaces and be in front of these kinds of people, you can dismiss those myths and stereotypes by the actual work and the outcomes that you're having in working with these individuals and their families. Um, you have spoken about uh, welfare, uh, welfare, that too, right? criminal justice reform, <laughs> they mm -hmm. hand in hand for me. That's why it's hard for me to detach them. <laughs> right. right. Criminal justice um, reform um, and really looking at the system, what's some of the most important pieces of work that we have to do to be able to impact the system to be more fair? I think you got to work on both ends. Um, one of the things that I love that we did at Tory is started having graduations. So you're talking to the client, but you're also talking to all the other interdisciplinary professionals that are working with your client. All of those folks that are working with them, parole, probation, the court um, systems, everyone who's working with them are not people of faith, mm -hmm. right? 
Um, so they're not always going to believe in this change that you're, you are speaking of. Um, and so uh, oftentimes we sit in the advocate's seat. And I tell my clients sometimes, they say, you know, um, it's like I'm co-signing for you. you. You may have shown up with bad credit, but I have good credit. Mm-hmm. And so together, when we come to the table, they're listening, they're trusting, but I'm, I'm offering the peace offering, you know, the bridge. Um, and, and I'm vouching for you. I'm saying I've watched this change, right? But you got to do the work. And so um, I think some of the parts of the criminal justice system that can be reformed is through exposure. And one of the things Tori did um, with our graduations every year was we were, we were calling in elected officials, judges, um, prosecutors, you know, the defense attorneys, like everybody who's involved, the Supreme Court justices, We've um, anyone who's a decision maker, Congress people, you know, like they need to see the flip end of this because what you always see is incarceration, but you don't see what it looks like when it can be successful. And so through the years, like after these 18 years, I have seen judges that have went a whole different direction with with diversion courts, you know, where that wasn't even an option before. The, the young man I was telling you about before, the 24-year-old, the, the DA that questioned me on the stand, mm. um, when we went into court, probation wasn't even an option for him. He was facing five to 99 years. After speaking on his behalf, they gave him 10 years of probation. And that wasn't even on the table. But what we made the case about was this eight-month-old baby is no longer going to have a father and you're going to have another broken home and you're going to have another child who's going through um, and essentially maybe even a generational incarcerated individual, right? So we thought it was in his best interest as long as he was connected to the program, he was succeeding, he was working, he was doing all the things um, that he'd be better off back in the community. He wasn't a threat to the community. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, we have witnessed change like that in the courtroom where decisions are being made about people's lives. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes the people that are making decisions about their lives have no point of reference to their life. So a lot of times we are that middleman. We are that person that's in the middle advocating, advocating for, for change. Yeah. That exposure piece is so critically important because we do it here in Atlanta Every time we have a graduation, we just plaster our social media platforms with the photos of them with their families and them smiling and quotes that they make that day. And we um, take them through, we pick a valedictorian and we have them speak and we have the alumni. We invite all of the alumni to come back to the graduations of the new class to kind of talk to them and create this whole notion of what we call peer-to-peer leaning. And so we're very adamant that Fathers Incorporated does not do mentoring because once you say you do mentoring, that puts you in a whole nother space. Mm -hmm. For our fathers, we do peer-to-peer learning and we do peer-to-peer leaning. Peer-to-peer leaning is when you have a natural relationship with someone that you respect. Mm -hmm. When you begin to have doubts and difficulties in your life, you lean on them. You don't Mm -hmm. 
invade their space and you don't command their space. It's a person who's always there and available for you or you're leaning mutually back and forth. And so when you cultivate an environment where people believe that they're within a brotherhood, which is why we call our program Fatherhood is Brotherhood, you got to have the mindset of being in a brotherhood with individuals that are experiencing or has experienced the same thing you have and are available for you to lean on when you have those issues. If there's a pastor out there or someone who's within a faith-based body today that is interested in doing this kind of work, working with um, returning citizens, and they don't know where to start or how to start, what advice would you give them? Well, I think the model at Tory, it's a faith-based prisoner reentry program that started out of a church, is a great place to start. Um, and it's a shameless plug on my behalf, but I, I really believe it's a, re- a replicable model. It's it's easy to start. Um, doesn't cost a lot to get started, and and for a lot of reasons, I think a lot of churches are already doing the work. Um, it just hasn't been put together. So I, I think um, I think it's a very easy um, and seamless process that can get started um, to expand their prison ministry if they have one in place, or to build. Um, for those coming home from prison. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because when you just said that, my thought process was typically when individuals think about working with incarcerated individuals or doing prison ministry, yeah, that that work can only be done solely in the prison. It's like, no, it's like they come home. 85% come home. Right. You're, you're <laughs> going to be a better support for them it's nice to go in and do those things um, if you can and you have the ability to do so. But, you know, you said something earlier about working with individuals that actually are coming home from the jails that are within your um, arm reach and they're coming in to your space. So mm-hmm. even if you work with them on the inside, you have to have some mechanism of supporting them when they come out. And that's what we're seeing in our programs where we're working in the jails that we're in, that many of these guys that we're working with on the inside, the day that they get out, they call. Hey, mm-hmm. I remembered you. You told me to give you a call when I came out. I got this mm-hmm. issue going on. And I think to be able to catch them when they come out and and soften their landing in the community and provide them with a level of support that they can lean on is a large body of this work as well. And I just, you know, I'm, I'm in a different space when it comes to people talking about doing this work. Um, your heart can only take you so far in doing that. You have to have training, infrastructure, understanding, a knowledge base, compassion, sympathy, empathy. All of these things got to come into play because you can literally do more damage for an individual than help if you don't really know what, even if your heart is in it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think you have to have a point of reference. Mm-hmm. Um, at the baseline, you know, um, if you're looking, if you if you come into this already looking your nose down at them, mm-hmm. um, then you've missed it. 
Um, if you come in on a level playing field, which is where I feel like the church should be for all have sinned and fallen short. And so it's a level playing field when you come in. But um, I also believe that there should be trained professionals that help you sort through some of those issues. And uh, part, part of what we do and the work we do, we hire social workers, counselors, um, because there's a lot of trauma to process. And that may not be your strong suit, or maybe you're not trained in that, but there's other parts of it that you can help um, in getting the resources to them, connecting them to employers, um, finding landlords that would give second chances for housing. Um, there's so many different parts of it that you can take hold of and, and work that, that end of it. It's not all about the counseling. It's not all about the social work parts, you know. So um, I think everybody in the church can play a part in helping with aftercare for reentry. Wow. Tina, tell everybody how they can get in touch with you, how they can find more about Tori. Sure. Um, you can reach us at 214-623-4286. Again, that number is 214-623-4286. You can also find us on social media at MEDC Tori, T-O-R-I, at MEDC Tori. Um, or you can go on to our website, www.toriprogram.org. Um, we hope to see you and anything we can do to help you get started. We're here for you. Tina, thanks so much. She is the executive director of Tori, which stands for Texas Offenders Reentry Initiative in Dallas, Texas, under the leadership of Bishop T.D. Jakes. It is always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for all of the opportunities that you have ever given me um, to share my heart, share my work um, with those who are in your space. And you know that there is absolutely nothing that you can ask me for that I'm going to say no. And so know that you Thank have you. that in your toolbox. Thank you for the work you're doing as well. We really sincerely need it and appreciate it. Thank you so much. And thank all of you for joining I Am Dad podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth Braswell, and we will see you next Sunday, same time, same place. Have a great weekend. God bless. Thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us. You've been listening to I Am Dad podcast. We hope that you have been informed, encouraged you to think, or even inspired your heart for the love of dads. The conversation does not end here. Come back and join us next week. Same time, same place. Or you can continue the dialogue on our I Am Dad Facebook page. We also invite you to listen to past episodes, learn more about us, and keep up with special activities by visiting IamDadPodcast.com. That's IamDadPodcast.com. Until next time, I leave you with this reminder of manhood from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a child... I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Because of this reminder, I will always understand that I am dad, period. period.